Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. Today, we bring you Episode 5, Compliance Pitfalls in Product Development Planning. Our guest this episode is Dr. Jack Rizdahl, who is a Principal Product Development Strategist with a focus on preclinical testing. Jack has doctorates in veterinary medicine and philosophy, and he brings over 30 years of experience in product development planning to our conversation. Prior to joining NAMSA in 2012, Jack taught at the University of Minnesota and held a faculty position at the Mayo Clinic. In the medical device industry, Jack was the global director at Baxter and was co-owner and managing partner at Integra Group. Today, he is here with us to share his vast experience and knowledge on potential compliance pitfalls in product development planning. Thank you for joining us. All right, Rich, we're back again for another episode of the RAQA podcast, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. And today we have a special guest, Rich. Usually in my time of doing regulatory submissions, different products, we always have animal testing or some kind of testing that has to be done, specifically animal testing. And it's good that we have today Jack Ristall with us today to kind of like go over what he has done, what he has seen. So I'm looking forward to this conversation, Rich. Yeah, me too, Jack. We're so excited to have you today. It's I, I've been blessed with the opportunity to work with you over the last, well, it hasn't quite been a year, but uh, to get to work with you on a project. So we get to talk pretty regularly. But when we were brainstorming ideas of who we wanted to to talk with, you were at the top of the list because of your knowledge. And just, you're just, every time I have a discussion with you, I learn something new. And, and, and I thought I knew everything, but apparently uh, I've got a long ways to go. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about our our work that we do. It'll be fun. Awesome. So before we get too deep into the conversation, what are you, what are you drinking today? You know, I'm not going to tell you what's in here, but I, I do have <laughs> something to quench my thirst. <laughs> it is Friday. It is Friday. It is Friday for the recording. What about you, Linford? What are you drinking today? I have some Ocean Spray Cran Tropical Juice. So it's going to quench my thirst. It's going to be refreshing and, you know, getting ready for like, you know, springtime, summertime, getting my mind right. And so me personally, I, I, I stole from my son's inventory of uh, Juarito's Mandarin flavored soda. So it's, it's really good stuff. But uh, I bought it for his birthday, which was yesterday. And, and then I proceeded to raid the cupboards. So he's That's got one, one less bottle. flavor I haven't <laughs> tried yet. The one flavor. His favorite is pineapple. That's Which I'd I never like. had pineapple soda before, but uh, he, he got us hooked on that. Pineapple is good. The guava is also pretty good as well. The last one I had was lime. So if you're interested, try the lime flavor as well. Yeah, that one's good. So, All right. So, well, outside of that, you know, Jack, we really wanted to bring you in today to talk about compliance pitfalls specifically associated around things like animal testing. And we thought you'd be a perfect guest for that. And so we're really hoping... That part of this conversation helps our listeners do things like plan out appropriate testing, do it efficiently, 
And so the first question that comes up when we when we think about this is, you know, what are some pitfalls and what are some mistakes that you have seen made over your years that that could be avoided by potential clients or by potential listeners? Sure, it's a great question and I can tell you over the years I've I've seen a lot of mistakes that people make in the product development path and we could talk for hours and hours about all the many mistakes that you can make. But I, when I saw your, your, your questions, I did boil it down to four top things that I, I think I see clients that probably covers 90% or better of, of, of the mistakes that sponsors make in the product development. And I'll read them off to you and we can, we can talk about them. I'd say the very first one, probably top of the list, is not really having a good product development plan. Many times sponsors go forward in their product development without really ratifying a good plan and understanding all of the components that they need to get their product to market. A second one is really not interacting with FDA and working with the regulatory agencies early in the process and then finding out too late that they missed things. The third thing on my list is not engaging or having a good experienced team help them. Many times small companies go it on their own and you know they're tight on funds and they don't bring in people who have had a lot of experience in getting products to market. So inadvertently they they make mistakes that they don't they don't know that they will. Finally, I'd say the last piece is really about funding both in time and money and understanding and appropriately budgeting for both of those things. And, and, and many, that sort of circles back to that very first topic, which is really that product development plan. So with that, that's, that, those are sort of the, the, the big buckets of mistakes that we see a lot. That's good that we have like a actual top four. And I know from my experience and my time in regulatory, when you say interaction with FDA, that's the, thing, the second thing you mentioned. Sometimes our clients think that that would take more time, that would add more time to like getting something done. So what are some ways do you think we could help them mitigate these mistakes? I know you mentioned like product development, interaction with FDA, not having a good budget or enough money. What are some ways, based on your top four, that could help to mitigate some of these different mistakes that you have seen? Sure. You know, I think, I think number one is really engaging the right people in the process. And it's really having, you know, a very well-seasoned and, and helpful regulatory person to start with who can understand how to navigate the, the regulatory. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, whether it's FDA or working with notified bodies in Europe or PMDA in Japan or anywhere else in the world. I, I would say engaging that, that person is, is really key component. And then all of the other people around that who can support that product development you know, process and, and, and can bring to the table the components of, of expertise that are needed to really help ratify and understand the, the things that are needed to be done for whatever their product is. And, and you know, that includes the preclinical piece, which is all of the bench testing, all of the animal testing, all of the biocompatibility uh, testing. It's also understanding reimbursement, having the end in mind and knowing, you know, that that's, that's part of their business plan. It's It's understanding the clinical piece. And you know, good risk assessment and getting, you know, their quality system set up. All of those things are key 
to running your company and having a, a good you know development plan that allows you to really stay on task and and keep things moving forward. And so I'd say that is probably the one thing that companies can do very smartly is to engage a team in a very you know judicious manner early, getting the key people at the table. You said something, you know, so having the key people, having a team, and typically when when I think about this type of work, well, when I think about almost any type of planning work, you know, you've got the, the trifecta that you you should always have somebody from quality, the most important group in my um, you should always have, you know, your reg team, because they're the ones who are going to help you start planning out, okay, here are the standards and regulations that apply to the product with the market that you're putting them in. And then your engineering team or your development team, right? Those are, I think, are all usually, you know, pretty consistent. We see almost all companies engaging those three entities. But can you think of other entities that you would want involved specifically when you're thinking about planning out, you know, animal testing activities? Are there any other people that you would bring to the table to make sure you've got a good plan? Well, you know, certainly the animal testing in and of itself is a team. And so many times you want to work with somebody who is experienced in the space with the animal testing for regulated studies. I'll give you an example that where, where I see sponsors kind of go wrong. Many times we get new technologies that are spun out of academic centers, for instance. And many times they, they're great at publishing papers and they're great at doing science and research. However, they're not necessarily familiar all the time with regulated studies, which, which have to be conducted under GLP conditions, 21 CFR Part 58, or anywhere else in the world, mostly it's, it's a harmonized form of GLP. That usually has to occur. Uh, so in Europe, it's almost the same type of thing. It's 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 the the European GLPs, and, and so a laboratory who has an understanding of that is going to be a key partner in getting your 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 hallmark safety studies performed. And too many times, people you know who who aren't who aren't experienced in product development will rush off to FDA with an academic study, like a publication or you know things that they think are, are going to be accepted by the agency. And the agency very politely turns them down. And, and so that is a, is a misunderstanding we see a lot. And, and many of our sponsors ask that question, do I need to do this GLP? And the answer is for your safety, absolutely. And, and so the, I, I'd say under, you know, getting that team involved who is part of the laboratory Part of a GLP laboratory who can conduct your study is probably the most important team. And then it's not only the people who plan the studies and interact with the agencies, such as myself, but we also bring in the people conducting the studies, the people on the ground, the, 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 the surgeon, the pathologist, the study director, you know, all of the people who, who, who participate in that study are also important to be a sounding board in terms of what we want to propose to the agency in order to conduct that study. Yeah, I love... Oh, go ahead, Linford. Sorry, I just want to make sure we kind of like jump in there real quick. You said GLP. Could you like define that for us that don't know yeah. what it stands for? Yeah. No, it's, a, it's, it's a great question. The, the GLPs are a set of standards that are laid out in the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's, it stands for Good Laboratory Practices in our... Code of Federal Regulations, it would be 
21 CFR Part 58. Now, there has been GLPs written in other parts of the world, and there have been entire, you know, harmonization committees accepting GLPs across countries. So many times GLP that's conducted under OECD, which would be European GLPs, oftentimes are accepted by FDA. And, and GLP, the good laboratory practices, is really about conducting a study in a way where the data integrity is very sound. And so you ensure that there's good documentation, that, that, that all of your equipment is validated, that the facilities and all of the operations and the procedures are all under a very controlled uh, situation. And the idea is that those studies, first, you can trust the data, but secondly, you can reproduce them. And, and that's really the nature of what the GLPs are. And it's, it's not often understood outside of regulated studies and, and not often conducted in academic centers. There are academic centers who do this. I, I don't want to say all of them don't, but it's much more rare. I love that you brought this up. I knew this was going to be an exciting conversation. So I, I come from an academic background and, and I studied animal behavior in university. And you said something that was re- really rung true with me and that when you're in, when you're in academics, you know, you're thinking of a question that you want to test. And then you design your, your entire process around, you know, not proving that test, but, you know, identifying whether your question is, is accurate or not. Right. And so in the process of doing that is much different, very different than setting up testing for GLP. And I, you hit something so true to me in that, you know, in academics, brilliant people, great test designs, but the, that's not the same process as setting up a GLP study. And so. You're right. There's oftentimes kind of that, I don't want to say misstep, but misunderstanding that what you've done to prove your idea or test your idea, I should say, and hopefully prove it, is different than setting up testing to make sure that it is safe and designed properly to to whatever regulations or regulatory bodies' expectations. And it's a big leap. And that's why I hope, I really hope that we have some academic listeners to this podcast because this is a really, really big point. And I think we've all seen that happen when, if we've ever worked with clients that come from academia. And we're seeing it more and more, right? I think so, in that we're seeing a it's, lot more academic centers coming up with products. It's where the great inventions come from. And, and many times people invent something there and then suddenly they want to, to make it, you know, bring it to market. And, and that's, that's usually where we see those challenges. And yeah, you know, and, and I too, you know, part of my career was in academia, and and I I I had my own lab, and I had my own research funding, and and, and did that, and and it's very different. And you are in discovery in that situation, and the the nature of the the testing is more of a, as you you know, kind of discussed, it's it's more of a, a discovery process of of trying to find the solution and then publishing, you know, your data. However, in, in the, you know, the regulated studies, it's much more about following a protocol, a prospective protocol. Everything's built around the protocol and following that to the T so that it can be reproduced. And then it's all about the integrity of the data as it demonstrates 
the very specific endpoints of safety and performance mm -hmm. of a new device. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I know we started out this conversation asking about common mistakes. And Jack, something that we like to ask here on the REQ podcast is that what are some like green flags? What are some things that you've seen that went well, that really weren't like pitfalls or things you would, you would recommend that clients do or, or sponsors do moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think the, the one thing I can say, the sponsors who really, you know, you know, stab the dismount in the whole thing are the ones who are really well planned and who follow the, who do create a great, you know, product development plan, who do have good people around them, experienced people around them, and who interact with the agency ahead of time. And, you know, what we see a lot, many times what we get involved with are the train wrecks. You know, the, the, somebody ran off to FDA, FDA, you know, did not, you know, accept, you know, gave them deficiencies in a submission. And now the clock starts. They've got 180 days to, to correct their deficiencies. And, you know, they're, they're under the gun and they should have come earlier and, and planned better. The ones who do well are the ones who've, who go in early, who have created a good plan, who understand what the agency wants, and they conduct the studies that the agency wants and, you know, include all of the endpoints that are needed. And if you don't do that, you miss things. And then FDA says, well, this is all good and fine, but hey, there's, there's a big piece missing here. And if you didn't collect it, and you didn't collect it in your animal study, game over. You have to repeat it. And that's time-consuming and expensive. And so, you know, you don't want to miss things. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I would add to that is that the companies that I see do well are the ones who actually take the time to review any protocol presented to them. I, I think sometimes companies are so desperate for help, or I don't shouldn't use the word desperate, but you know they they have so much trust in the in the in the companies that they're hiring to to do their work for them that sometimes they don't take that step to thoroughly read through a test protocol or a test plan and make sure it's it's what they need. And you also mentioned you know. We're now in a day and age where you can actually go to the FDA and present, here's what our game plan is, and get feedback for them before you execute. It wasn't always that way. Some, it used to be that you would you know, you'd throw your stuff to the FDA and then you'd wait for them to say, oh, no, you did it right or you didn't do it right. Now you have an opportunity to really make sure that you've got a good, solid plan before you execute. And that's always going to make you more efficient. And you know we always want to get things to market as, as fast as possible, but we want to do it in the most efficient way possible. Rich, what you said really resonated with me in that when, when you said, you know, I think just sort of trusting one person or one perspective, you know, I'm a very inclusive person because I've learned over the years that we're all human and we all miss things. And the more people that look at things and the more people that participate in understanding it, you begin to bring in different perspectives and different expertise. And so in a you know protocol development, in a plan development, it's good to have multiple perspectives and and, and don't just listen to one one person. Have it run, run it by others as well. And in that team, you know, for example, when we're doing our our study designs for for FDA, we include you know, all the laboratory personnel. And we also reach out to other experts. And, and 
and bounce things off of each other and say, hey, what do you think? You know, do, do you think that this is something, am I missing anything here in your experience? Because uh, many times, and many times it just takes that sanity check. So I, I think, yes, the, and, and the participants are the sponsor and they are the lab and they are, you know, the, the, the regulatory team that's involved with the submission. And everybody should be, again, at the table looking at this and, and being you know, part of it to make sure that everything's included that needs to be. And that's a great point too, you know, how do we ensure everything is included that, that needs to be there? You know, for example, if I'm a small company, right, is there a document, Jack, that I could read or that my regulatory person could read that talks about FDA's ex- expectations when it comes to like doing a study? Sure. It's the guidance documents, right? And, and FDA gives you those. And so, you know, they sort of give you these, these, these guidance documents of their thinking and and that's the great thing about FDA. And of course, there's all the, you know, regulations and that sort of thing. But, but those you defer many times to your, your regulatory experts. But, every, you know, I think all sponsors, you know, if there's a specialty guidance out there, they should be reading that. Because it's, it's not, you know, it's in the preclinical realm. It's in the clinical realm. It's in the manufacturing realm. FDA has spent a lot of time trying to give sponsors this information so that they can not make mistakes because FDA sees it over and over and over again. So that they, they kind of say, all right, we're going to develop a guidance document because we're sick of seeing all these mistakes. And so they, they create these guidance documents for sponsors so that, that there can be, you know, some, some consistency in terms of, of people's, you know, submissions and how they're, how they're done. So that's really the, the best starting place, I think, to understand what's needed. So you mentioned FDA guidance documents, and I know that the FDA, they last drafted the guidance in, what, 2015, and but just this week they announced that it's out for its final round of commentary. Yeah. Is that correct? That was, yeah, it was, it was they, they issued it as sort of the final draft form, or, but uh, it, it is in its final form to be released, and that came out this week. And so the guidance document that we're discussing is, is the guidance document that is for conducting animal studies for medical devices. And, you know, the, the, the very first one was focused on cardiovascular devices. That, okay. that was actually a, a fully released guidance document for animal studies. And then FDA came out a, a couple of years after that with a general guidance for medical devices, but it's been in draft form for a long time, for quite a number of years. But the industry has been following it. And then this, this last week, they, they came out with their final version of that, which is a, it, you know, it's a, it's a much more refined document than the previous one. That's good. Yeah, I was looking at it in, um, you know, so I, I sit on the Amy standards meetings for, for ISO standards meetings for NAMSA. And so I have some awareness of how those standards are developed, but I've never worked with the development or the commentary on FDA documents. So I, I kind of did some digging into this and it was really neat to me to be able to see that you can see the comments that people provide back on the standards and you could see the FDA incorporating those comments. So they do appreciate feedback on, on these guidance documents that they, that they produce for public commentary. And, and I think it's important because it, it's, you know, it's a sort of a bi-directional sort of conversation with FDA and industry needs to tell FDA where things 
don't make sense. And and usually there's common sense and FDA gets that. They're, you know, they're like all of us and you put things out in good faith, but then sometimes the interpretation of them and sometimes the way that people understand them doesn't come across the way it's really meant to. And, and so I think when those comments are, are, are given back to the agency, then they can put out a better document that, that helps people follow it. And we, we did see, you know, we, we saw challenges with the, you know, the original draft document that, that people uh, were, were interpreting. And I think FDA has rectified a lot of those things in, in their most current version. Yeah, that's, and that's a very good point, speaking to the, to the guidance document. I had like two questions for you, Jack, regarding the guidance document. Are there any like key takeaways that you would say that you've seen looking at the document? I know from my review, they talked about, you know, before doing an animal study, please make sure that your preclinical work is done. Make sure that the appropriate steps are taken before you kind of move on to that next step. Is there anything in the guidance document that, that you saw that you thought, this is something that we should keep in mind moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think FDA always emphasizes, you know, you should be doing your hallmark GLP safety studies on the final finished product. They they emphasize that in in you know this document. They also, I would say that the 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 changes I saw, they certainly emphasized GLP in this document even stronger than what they did in the the, the former version. And you know, I. I they open the door for conversation, but they really emphasize the pre-sub process. And if there are any questions to interact with, with them, you know, again, early and often in, in the pre-sub, you know, interaction. And, you know, the, the rest of the document reads very similarly, and, but they've made it simpler. It went from like 33 pages down to 21 pages. And so I think it's, it's, it's more refined, but all the key points are there. The one thing I would say too is I get to I get to interact with the agency a lot, and so many of the things when I read the, the most recent document, I nodded my head and said, "Well, this this makes sense because this is what we've seen in the last couple of years. This is very this is this sounds like FDA. It sounds like the feedback that we get, uh, and so it it is it is a document of their most current thinking, uh, and it reflects that. That's good to know. I know we're, man, Rich, we just, we just got started talking and I feel like if we could ask more questions, but the one question I had for you, Jack, is are there any differences with expectation when it comes to like different geographies or different markets? So for example, you know, we have FDA in the US. What if I wanted to like maybe introduce my device in Canada or Europe or Australia or maybe China? Have you noticed any differences with what the requirements might be for a specific study? Yeah, sure. There's there's a lot of places that are very close, and, and then there are a few that are that are different. And and you know certainly Europe and the U.S. are really very close. And and I would say with the changes in the MDR, there may Europe may actually have a few things now that are perhaps more stringent. So there are some subtle differences. And I think engaging with a, a regulatory team. Who understands the MDR and understands some of those regulatory needs is is really a, a, a very important thing. Similarly, in, in in other countries, while many things are the same, you know, for example, your your GLP safety study might be the same in you know Europe or Japan or the U.S. or Canada, but then other things around that supporting that may actually be a little bit different. And so, making sure 
that you have all the components that are required by either the notified body or PMDA or you know you know uh, Health Canada. All of those all of those components are are, are important to 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 make sure that you understand so that again you don't miss anything when you're conducting your studies. You know depending on where you're where you're directing your your submissions. And then certainly other countries, there are some that have less stringent conditions and requirements. And again, just understanding the requirements are very, very helpful. As you get, you know, into smaller countries, sometimes it's it's more directed towards what's required for clinical trials and you 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 have less requirements. But then again, here interacting with somebody who is knowledgeable on the regulatory side to help understand those requirements really helps you design the right studies so that you get what's needed and you don't miss anything, you know, and, and, and you meet the, the expectations of wherever you're submitting. Oh, man, that's, that's very good to know. Very good to know. And just to build on that, right? And this is my last question, I promise. My last question. Where do you see the future? <laughs> Where do you see the future going? So there's been some articles talking about no longer needing to do an animal study based on the treatment of these animals. Do you see or do you envision a future where we won't need to do these kind of studies moving forward? Or do you not think that that's possible to evaluate medical devices, I should say? It's, you know, I think there are many cases that, you know, technology has helped us move away from the use of animals, which is a, a great thing, because ultimately, you know, we, we, we want to reduce, refine, replace. They talk about the three R's in, in animal studies as much as possible. However, I, I don't envision, at least in my lifetime, and perhaps maybe even my grandchildren's lifetime, totally moving away from the animals because physiology is very, very complicated. And, and putting a product into a biological system that has, you know, all of the hormones, all of the blood flow, all of the cellular, you know, metabolism ongoing is really the only way to understand the interaction, I guess, the symphony of the body's response to a, a product when it's implanted. And, and that is pivotal to your to making sure the product is safe for humans and really you know this goes back to the Nuremberg code right you know if you look at the 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 10 tenets of the Nuremberg code probably you know top of you know towards the top of the list is that before you put this in a human the researcher either puts it in themselves or they put it in an animal and 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 do the animal testing because again before we put our devices into people, we need to understand the safety of those devices. And so I, I, while I think we're getting better, and I think we are moving in many ways towards alternatives, I don't envision that we will completely move away from having to do this type of research. And ultimately, it's a good thing for both humans and animals, because we're able to, to come up with cures that not only serve you know, human medicine, but veterinary medicine as well. Wonderful. And as we discussed before we even had the conversation, I, I, we'll make sure we provide a link to at least the, the new FDA guidance that came out earlier this week. It says uh, March 28th. I'm looking at it on my computer screen. And, uh, you know, any other valuable links that we can provide that that join in this conversation. But that was a really good suggestion. But 
Jack, thanks for so much for joining us. I think we could talk for another hour, but we want to make sure that you're getting to your client needs. So uh, <laughs> we don't we don't want to monopolize your time. But uh, we really enjoyed having you. I took notes again. I learned a lot. Just another opportunity to talk with you. It's great. Well, it's always fun, and uh, I appreciate the the time and the great conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Jack. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jack. Thank you so much for listening to the RAQA Cafe podcast on potential compliance pitfalls with a focus on product development with Dr. Jack Rizdahl. Next month, we'll shift our focus to talks on the EU, and we'll be speaking with Warren Jamison on in vitro diagnostic devices and the IVDR. We already have a lot of questions prepared for this subject, and we can't wait to talk with Warren. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the RAQA Cafe, and if you'd like to hear more, please visit us at www.namsa.com and don't forget to bring your favorite drink.